Having a legal identity is something we often take for granted in a country like Australia. When we want to travel overseas or open a bank account or navigate MyGov ID, it's relatively straightforward for most of us to obtain a passport or provide the necessary 100 points of ID proof. But our experience is far from universal. Many people in the world, around 1 billion as estimated by the World Bank, lack access to any official government-issued proof of their legal identity. As well as practical problems caused by lack of proof of legal identity, such as difficulty passing borders. The recognition of one's existence is foundational to the very idea of human rights and human dignity. The importance of legal identity is reflected in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which include the target of providing proof of legal identity for all human citizens by 2030. Given this commitment, it's worth considering both the means and goals of providing everyone with legal identity. Human rights approaches regard identity as foundational to respect and dignity, recognising each and every one as a separate individual. But this view may conflict with technological approaches to identity, which are linked to security goals rather than respect. Here to help us think through some of these issues is Christoph Sperfeld, a member of the Macquarie University Ethics and Agency Research Centre. He's a senior lecturer in the Macquarie Law School and currently holds an ARC DECRA Fellowship. Welcome, Christoph. Thanks for having me, Wendy. Before we get into some of the material in your paper, can you tell us how you first became interested in the topic of legal identity? Well, that happened like 15 years ago now. I worked at the time practically in development cooperation in Cambodia. I was an advisor for a local NGO and we traveled to the Tonle Sap Lake, which is like this big lake in the middle of Cambodia. And I came across uh, minority communities there who belong to the Vietnamese minority that couldn't provide any proof of their legal identity. And that triggered my interest. And we did over a number of years, some research into the situation of this community and essentially concluded that these people held no nationality of any state and were thus stateless. So, and that then started a whole larger interest in the issue of statelessness, in the issue of people living without proof of their legal identity. I started working at a new center on statelessness at Melbourne Uni, worked there for three years on various issues around legal identity and statelessness, uh, particularly in Southeast Asia, uh, and continue now this agenda here at Macquarie University. Yeah. So... In a way, it sounds kind of straightforward, legal identity, but it's much more complicated, isn't it? Can you just explain some of the complexities and ambiguities in defining legal identity and proving it, I guess? Yeah, the complexity starts with that there is no agreed-upon definition of legal identity. There's no definition under international law of what the term means, uh, and yet it popped up in the um, Sustainable Development Goals, and that means that a range of different actors and people try to basically project their own understanding to the term. How I have made sense in the paper of legal identity is that I often see this as an interconnection of three dimensions. On the one hand side, it's a status that is basically provided by law, Onto you, you may hold like a status as a national, as a permanent resident, or whatever under law, under domestic laws. Uh, then there are the systems and processes that accord or rec- record that status. You know, these are often like registration processes that are carried out by governments, like birth registration processes, etc. But crucially, and you will have experienced it yourself when you go to a bank or elsewhere, it's actually the proof of your legal identity that really matters, where you have to show uh, that you actually hold such a status or that you actually are registered with a government register. 
Yeah, so those, those these haven't been material documents like your birth certificate, your driver's licence, your passport and so on. I hadn't thought about it in those three different ways. So you, the benefits you get from having identity, the, the mechanisms and then the actual material objects. But you refer to an identity gap in your in your paper, a legal identity gap. What does this mean? Yeah, even though you started our conversation with highlighting how for us in Australia that's pretty normal to actually be able to prove our legal identity to authorities, to private actors as well, like banks or other people we interact with, this is not normal across the world. Many people on this globe are not able to prove their legal identity. That means they do not hold to proof or they are unable to basically get a status with the government recorded. So this is often referred to by many international development actors as the legal identity gap. How big that gap is, we do not know, simply because we also do not agree on the definition of legal identity. But the World Bank has come up with its own data set and estimates that roughly a billion people on this globe are unable to provide a proof of their legal identity. Right. That's a scary number. That's like a sixth or yeah, of the population with no proof of who they are. Obviously, lots of different people are interested in identity and legal identity. And, you know, it's got onto the agenda of, um, you know, and become a target for one of the sustainable development goals. But there's all these different stakeholders are interested in it for different reasons. And, and you've identified five, five groups of actors who might have potentially competing goals in, in relation to legal identity. So there's the human rights people who are interested in identity as a, as a means of achieving human rights. There's sort of the government side of it. There's the development side where you might need to identity to access services and so on. Then there's security. And then finally, you've also included market perspectives. Again, picture's very complicated, but I wonder, could you talk us through each of those? I mean, the human rights, start with the human rights one. I think that's intuitively quite understandable, but please tell us about that. Yeah, I was quite intrigued by the growth of the set of actors in this space. When I started working on that is back in 2008 with these minorities in Cambodia, it was actually a very small space. And then the inclusion of the legal identity target in the SDGs has really propelled like an expansion of the set of actors working in the space. And I've tried to make sense of it with these categories. They're by no means like need and there's obviously also overlaps. But just talking you through these categories. So on the one side, there's obviously, and as you say, it's quite intuitive, the human rights dimension. We have a number of human rights documents and treaties referring to some sort of legal identity right. Yeah, We have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that proclaims a right for everyone to have personality recognized before the law. We have in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the Child Rights Convention a right to birth registration manifested. So from this kind of perspective, there's obviously a number of actors that try to enact these rights and make sure that people are actually able to realize these rights. So you can look onto legal identity as a right that people have. Then there are more the kind of drier actors that look at it more from a perspective of statistics and planning. Because from government perspectives, it's obviously good to know what are the people on our territory, what what is the age, where do they live, etc. So these kind of registration processes serve in that sense also a very important governance purpose in the sense of in terms of health uh, planning, in terms of service planning, etc. So there's a lot of like I would say maybe a group of uh, statisticians, demographers, etc. populating the space that look at it primarily from a governance perspective. Then the reason why I started working on it was kind of development perspective where people, we can see an increasingly an interconnection between development outcomes and having proof of your legal identity. That's interesting. It's Why is that? Why 
you know, if you're handing out food parcels or, you know, providing education, why is identity so important there? Because the way we govern has changed. Like, if I just look back into the communities that I worked, um, the Tonless Up Lake in the middle of Cambodia, maybe 40, 50 years ago, they were quite happy living beyond the state. You know, they didn't have proof of their legal identity and they were actually happy not to have one because when the state came, it was just to conscript them into the military for some war or to pay taxes. But there were no other services provided. This has changed, uh, not just in our countries, but around the globe and in the global south as well. States are now the main conduit for development opportunities and service delivery, be it from schooling, health, be it for social welfare, social security. For all these interactions with the state, we need to prove who we are. So states have increasingly tight possession of legal identity and proof of legal identity with these kind of development opportunities. It's seen to make this more efficient. It's seen to reduce corruption. It's seen to lead to better planning around these kind of opportunities, etc. We've experienced this in our daily lives. You know, we go to a bank, we have to prove who we are. We want to go to school, we have to um, provide a birth certificate. We want to go to the hospital, we have to provide a little card. Like wherever you go, we do have to provide these kind of proofs of legal identity. So th- this connection between development and legal identity is now widely recognized. Obviously, you're result of the specific way in which state governance has evolved. Right. So I'm just trying to sort of process this. So in some contexts where we see, you know, mass movement of refugees, asylum seekers and so on, and they first aid and so on isn't dependent on ha- having an identity, is it? But it? But as you go into more sophisticated aid, perhaps that's really trying to scaffold people's lives in a meaningful way, that's when the requirements increase. Yeah, and obviously in forced displacement and humanitarian assistance, the dynamics are different. Still, actors in the humanitarian space also are starting to register populations because it's about food aid, making sure that everyone gets something, not just a few, etc. So all these organizational processes are often tied also to process of identification. And the UNHCR has developed its own real sophisticated identification protocol there. But in terms of when we move more into the state governance space, state services, uh, state administrative and bureaucratic structures have become very heavily reliant upon making their own populations in a way legible, as James Scott would say, through these kind of registration and identification processes. Yeah. And of course, this might be positive in terms of wanting to know who lives where, how many children there are, how many old people, what health services will need. But there's a there's a more kind of sinister side as well, isn't there, in the security aspects of legal identity? Exactly. And this is another of these actor groups that we mentioned previously. It's obviously for the government very convenient to also think through this through a lens of security and surveillance. This started very early with border control and immigration purposes that governments wanted to make sure or wanted to know who enters the territory and who has a right to enter territory. And it expanded, obviously, to other purposes when we entered the 9-11 and counterterrorism operation that surveillance became much more widespread. And it's also something that is obviously not just for protection purposes, but if you just think about the number of authoritarian governments around the globe, they're obviously very happy have these kind of expansive population registers as well to survey their population. So there is also like a darker side to it where uh, we all have to be very careful. And that's why there is in that space a whole other set of actors around civil society organizations that advocate for privacy standards, data protection standards, etc. in this field to basically set standards that make sure that governments do not abuse this massive amount of data that they start to hold about their populations. Yeah, yes, that's... uh 
it's very striking. The changes just that we would have seen in the last 20 years or so in travelling, that the amount of surveillance and the amount of security has just grown exponentially over that time period. Just to finish off the the, the five actors, market perspective is the fun one. That was a bit of a surprise to me. What's, what's the market doing with legal identity? <laughs> Well, it's obviously twofold. The first is if we have a rising global attention to the issue, that means more money is flowing into it. Yeah, The World Bank and other actors are investing billions of dollars in this space to assist governments around the globe to build up new identification systems. And that obviously provides a market opportunity for companies who offer these kind of services. And it's, an, it's a very growing, like a fast growing market around uh, digital identification solutions, biometrics. You know, we have come across all when we travel uh, at the airports with a finger printing and all kind of things. So there's quite sophisticated technology involved in this and governments are really upscaling their identification systems. And on the other hand, private actors face the same conundrum. Uh, a bank, a multinational corporation that serves customers around the globe, they all also want to, you know, like identify their customers in a unique way to make sure that there's no abuse involved. So all of these solutions interact and that creates obviously opportunities for companies and it's expanding quite significantly, often also an overlap with the security space that we mentioned before that companies that were previously active in these kind of areas are now some of the leading companies in the identification space. Right. Well, that, yeah, that does make sense now, now, you, now you lay it out so elegantly. This legal identity target for the, from the Sustainable Development Goals has been in place for, for over five years now. What's your view about the progress that's been made and, and some of the challenges? Yeah, so the legal identity target, what it tries to achieve is to provide a legal identity for all by 2030. Remember the Sustainable Development Goals through which we coordinate global development efforts have set this kind of period of the number of goals by 2030 that UN member states or basically international community has decided they seek to achieve by 2030. And in the legal identity space, it says just legal identity for all, but the goal has just a single indicator. Like indicators are the way how we measure the achievement of these goals. And here we have just a single indicator around birth registration. Yeah, So we aim to achieve the goal by providing birth registration to all children when they're born. That has also to do with the way these goals are negotiated or sensitive issues around nationality, etc. did not enter the, the indicator list because governments are quite protective who they provide nationally to. So birth registration was agreeable. What that means is that we have since the adoption of the Sustainable Development Goals in 2015, seen a quite significant rise of investment and efforts in promoting universal birth registration in itself a very positive development. We have, like in many countries that I work, there's now significant more attention to universal birth registration and promoting civil registration systems in general, like marriage registration, death registration, etc. The question that I obviously have is intuitively, again, I do not go with my birth certificate to a bank to open a bank account. Yeah, It's more an indirect proof of illegal identity. It's an important one. It's a foundational proof. A lot of things flow from a birth certificate or birth registration, but usually it's other proofs of legal identity that unlock the kind of opportunity, services and protections that we are seeking. So from my perspective, what's currently going on is only an intermediate step to actually unlock the kind of development opportunities that we seek to achieve through this SDG. What would be the next level of proof of legal identity? So you've got the birth certificate as the foundational one. In an ideal world, what would you advocate for as the next level of of proof? Uh, In the ideal world, we wouldn't even have this conversation so much 
because everyone would be entitled to a range of rights by virtue of being a human. This is the whole idea about human rights, yeah, including social, political, cultural rights, etc. In our world, states have increasingly tied access to these kind of rights to a nationality. Yeah, we all will have seen this, that nationals of a state are entitled to a different sets of rights and opportunities than non-nationals. Uh, this is closely tied to how the nation-state has developed, and that is why I have like developed such an interest in statelessness, what happens with the people who have no access to a nationality. So sooner or later, we need to talk about the rights that are accorded to nationals and nationality, simply by seeing this, like the way how governments distribute these kind of rights and opportunities, or at least think about giving more equal rights to non-nationals. One of these two will have to occur And this will have to be an important conversation also under the Sustainable Development Goals. But as I mentioned, very sensitive discussion that states usually try to avoid. Right. And the birth certificate, it can prove who your parents were, but it also states where you were born. And that's key in, in determining nationality. It's one of the factors that's key, isn't it, being born on within one country or another? But it's not the only thing, but yeah. Exactly. And it obviously depends on how states uh, regulate the nationality this can be very different sometimes it might be place of birth like for instance in the united states often it's based on descent so parents would be very very important so these two factors are indeed very key uh, key to determining uh, your nationality and therefore it's also important that children's birth is being registered so that they can at later stage on life claim a nationality of a state so it's a necessary first step but it won't get us Well, it certainly won't get us to where you'd like to be in the ideal world. <laughs> yeah, and this has a lot to do with the reality and the way states work. I, in my work, have drawn a lot of attention to basically discrimination practices. We often like to think in the technocratic community around these sector groups that, hey, all we need is like the right technologies. We just need to build the right capacities. And then we will solve this legal identity gap because it's just a lack of capacities. Whereas... What my research in Asia and elsewhere in, in the world shows is that more often than not, it's actually state actors themselves are the culprits of that exclusion by designing laws or administrative practices that exclude certain groups from access to a legal identity, including a nationality. And this is often done through discriminatory practices. And when I just look in our region, the exclusion from nationality, Burmese nationality of the Rohingya, it's just a very prominent of such examples, but it's by no means the only one in our region. Yeah, so, so birth certificates really, your, your history of where you came from and where you were born just stands no chance against these political decisions. Ultimately, what I try to do in my research is to draw attention to these deep embeddedness of questions of identity and identification in the kind of uh, political economy of these societies. I think that is done only insufficiently at the moment. I think go more the kind of technocratic path. It's easier. It's easier to talk with governments about these things than drawing attention to these kinds of exclusion dynamics that are propelled by the very sensitive and very context-specific dynamics in each country. Is there a risk that the push for access to legal identity for everyone will actually kind of harden those those divides and that you know perhaps more people will get a, a legal identity that's recognised but the ones that are left outside will be even further discriminated against and find it even harder to, to, to break through? Yeah, because the argument is distributing these kind of opportunities and rights through identification and a legal identity uh, is more efficient, reduces corruption, you know, etc., has led governments to make proof 
of identity of mandatory to accessing all these opportunities. That means if you do not have a proof of your legal identity, you will not be able to access a certain right or a certain opportunity or a certain service. Uh, that trend of making an increasing set of opportunities and rights and services like mandatory upon processing a proof of identity that has sharpened these kind of divides. Now we need to think much more about the exclusions than we have ever thought before. And on top of this comes that our identification practices are becoming more sophisticated. Yeah, If I think again in the communities that I worked in Cambodia with, people were in the old times able to work around in the community, even when they were excluded. They just paid a little fee to a local policeman, you know, they knew they were a cousin of someone, so they could find a work around in the local communities. Now imagine a biometric system intervening in this kind of context where at least our fingerprints, possibly a biometric photo, sometimes even like if you look at India, for instance, the use of iris scans. So when these kind of systems intervene, your local level workarounds will become extremely limited. Yeah, so this might sharpen the divides of those who are included in the systems and who are excluded. And this is really what I try to show in my research as well to draw attention to these kind of exclusion dynamics. Yeah. So the technical, yeah, blade, I'm thinking of Blade Runner when they do the iris check to, um, but it's, yeah, it's not, it's not in the, it's not a sci-fi movie anymore. It's a, re- and that sharpening of the biometric tools is again, it's just another way of excluding people who, who, who aren't, who that, who that particular system isn't going to count for whatever reason. Yeah. And basically what I try to say with these kind of things is the push for universal legal identity has this kind of Janos-faced dynamic. Yeah, there's on the one hand side, it will indeed, and we can see this also in India at the moment, it will indeed reduce corruption. It can make service delivery much more efficient. It can create a much directer interaction between the state and the people. But then there's this other side that even though some people may benefit and see improvements in their lives, uh, other communities, and these are particularly the ones that have already been marginalized before, may have been undocumented, there may be the displaced, there may be the refugees, there may be in minorities, etc. Uh, for them, a life might get much harder if we do not pay much more attention to the matter. Where are you planning to go with the research? It sounds like you've kind of been unpacking the problems and they're certainly not going away <laughs> yet. Yeah, it's a very fast-paced field, the legal identity field. So I'm trying to like continue to observe it and track it and look more into the national level implementation of some of these programs and initiatives. So I have, as you mentioned, just uh, received this research project now that luckily will allow me to do a bit more of that research over the next three years. And I will stick to my region, to Southeast Asia, and will look into particularly Cambodia, Thailand and Indonesia and see how governments and development actors there have tried to give effect to legal identity target and to see whether or not it promotes inclusion, which is ultimately goal of the SDGs. They have always this big label to leave no one behind written over them or whether it creates these kind of new forms of exclusion. Yeah, congratulations on the on the deck, Christoph, and, and good luck with your work and thanks for talking with us today. Um, that's all we've got time for. If you wish to read Christoph's paper, there are links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This is a Macquarie University Ethics and Agency Research Centre podcast and I'm your host, Distinguished Professor Wendy Rogers.